0: Blob
1: Talk Radio. I'm a storyteller, and I would like to tell you a few personal stories about what I like to call the danger of the single story. I grew up on a university campus, in Eastern Nigeria. My mother says that I started reading at the age of two, although I think four is probably close to the truth. So I was an early reader, and what I read were British and American children's books. I was also an early writer. And when I began to write at about the age of seven, stories in pencil with crayon illustrations that my poor mother was obligated to read, I wrote exactly the kinds of stories I was reading. All my characters were white and blue-eyed. They played in the snow. They (laughs) ate apples. And they talked a lot about the weather, how lovely it was that the sun had come out. (laughs) Now this, despite the fact that I lived in Nigeria, I had never been outside Nigeria. We didn't have snow. We ate mangoes. And we never talked about the weather, because there was no need to. My characters also drank a lot of ginger beer, because the characters in the British books I read drank ginger beer. Never mind that I had no idea what ginger beer was. And for many years afterwards, I would have a desperate desire to taste ginger beer. But that is another story. What this demonstrates, I think, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story, particularly as children. Because all I had read were books in which characters were foreign, I had become convinced that books, by their very nature, had to have foreigners in them, and had to be about things with which I could not personally identify. Now, things changed when I discovered African books. There weren't many of them available, and they weren't quite as easy to find as the foreign books, but because of writers like Chinua Achebe and Kamara Lai, I went through a mental shift in my perception of literature. I realized that people like me, girls with skin, the color of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. I started to write about things I recognized. Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination, they opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. I come from a conventional middle-class Nigerian family. My father was a professor. My mother was an administrator. And so we had, as was the norm, living domestic help who would often come from nearby rural villages. So the year I turned eight, we got a new houseboy. His name was Fide. The only thing my mother told us about him was that his family was very poor. My mother sent yams and rice and our old clothes to his family. And when I didn't finish my dinner, my mother would say, Finish your food! Don't you know people like Fide's family have nothing? So I felt enormous pity for Fide's family. Then one Saturday, we went to his village to visit. And his mother showed us a beautifully patterned basket made of dyed raffia that his brother had made. I was startled. It had not occurred to me that anybody in his family could actually make something. All I had heard about them was how poor they were, so that it had become impossible for me to see them as anything else but poor. Their poverty was my single story of them. Years later, I thought about this when I left Nigeria to go to university in the United States. I was 19. My American roommate was shocked by me. She asked where I had learned to speak English so well and was confused when I said that Nigeria happened to have English as its official language. She asked if she could listen to what she called my tribal music and was consequently very disappointed when I produced my tape of Mariah Carey. (laughs) She assumed that I did not know how to use a stove. What struck me was this. She had felt sorry for me even before she saw me. Her default position toward me as an African was a kind of patronizing, well-meaning pity. My roommate had a single story of Africa, a single story of catastrophe. In this single story, there was no possibility of Africans being similar to her in any way. No possibility of feelings more complex than pity. No possibility of a connection as human equals. I must say that before I went to the U.S., I didn't consciously identify as African. But in the U.S., whenever Africa came up, people turned to me, never mind that I knew nothing about places like Namibia. But I did come to embrace this new identity, and in many ways, I think of myself now as African, although I still get quite irritable when... Africa is referred to as a country, the most recent example being my otherwise wonderful flight from Lagos two days ago in which um, there was an announcement on the Virgin flight about their charity walk in India, Africa, and other countries. So after I had spent some years in the U.S. as an African, I began to understand my roommate's response to me. If I had not grown up in Nigeria, and if all I knew about Africa were from popular images, I too would think that Africa was a place of beautiful landscapes, beautiful animals, and incomprehensible people fighting senseless wars, dying of poverty and AIDS, unable to speak for themselves, and waiting to be saved by a kind, white foreigner. I would see Africans in the same way that I, as a child, had seen Fide's family. This single story of Africa ultimately comes, I think, from Western literature. Now here's a quote from the writing of a London merchant called John Locke who sailed to West Africa in 1561 and kept a fascinating account of his voyage. After referring to the black Africans as beasts who have no houses, he writes, They are also people without heads, having their mouths and eyes in their breasts. Now, I've laughed every time I've read this, and one must admire the imagination of John Locke. But what is important about his writing is that it represents the beginning of a tradition of telling African stories in the West. A tradition of sub-Saharan Africa as a place of negatives, of difference, of darkness, of people who, in the words of the wonderful poet (coughs) Rudyard Kipling, are half-devil, half child. And so I began to realize that my American roommate must have throughout her life seen and heard different versions of this single story. As had a professor who once told me that my novel was not authentically African. Now, I was quite willing to contend that there were a number of things wrong with the novel, that it had failed in a number of places but I had not quite imagined that it had failed at achieving something called African authenticity. In fact, I did not know what African authenticity was. The professor told me that my characters were too much like him, an educated and middle-class man. My characters drove cars. They were not starving. Therefore, they were not authentically African. But I must quickly add that I, too, am just as guilty on the question of the single story. A few years ago, I visited Mexico from the U.S. The political climate in the U.S. at the time was tense, and there were debates going on about immigration. And, as often happens in America, immigration became synonymous with Mexicans. There were endless stories of Mexicans as people who were Slicing the healthcare system, sneaking across the border, being arrested at the border, that sort of thing. I remember walking around on my first day in Guadalajara, watching the people going to work, rolling up to tears in the marketplace, smoking, laughing. I remember first feeling slight surprise, and then I was overwhelmed with shame. I realized that I had been so immersed in the media coverage of Mexicans that they had become one thing in my mind, the abject immigrant. I had bought into the single story of Mexicans, and I could not have been more ashamed of myself. So that is how to create a single story, show a people as one thing, as only one thing, over and over again, and that is what they become. It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There is a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nkale. It's a noun that loosely translates to, to be greater than another. Like our economic and political walls, stories too are defined by the principle of Nkale. How they are told, who tells them when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. The Palestinian poet, Murid Barghouti, writes that if you want to dispossess a people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with secondly. Start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British, and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with the failure of the African state, and not with the colonial creation of the African state, and you have an entirely different story. I recently spoke at a university where a student told me that it was such a shame that Nigerian men were, were <clears throat> physical abusers like the father character in my novel. I told him that I had just read a novel called American Psycho. LAUGHTER and that it was such a shame that young Americans were serial murderers. <laughs> now, 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 obviously I said this in a fit of mild irritation, but <laughs> it would never have occurred to me to think that just because I had read a novel in which a character was a serial killer, that he was somehow representative of all Americans, and now this is not because I'm a better person than that student, but because of America's cultural and economic power, I had many stories of America. I had read Thailand, Obdike, and Steinberg, and Gateskill. I did not have a single story of America. When I learned some years ago that writers were expected to have had really unhappy childhoods to be successful, I began to think about how I could invent horrible things my parents had done to me. But the truth is that I had a very happy childhood, full of laughter and love in a very close-knit family. But I also had grandfathers who died in refugee camps. My cousin, Polly, died because he could not get adequate health care. One of my closest friends, Ukuloma, died in a plane crash because our fire trucks did not have water. I grew up under repressive military governments that devalued education so that sometimes my parents were not paid their salaries. And so, as a child, I saw jam disappear from the breakfast table. Then margarine disappeared. Then bread became too expensive. Then milk became rationed. And most of all, a kind of normalized political fear invaded our lives. All of these stories make me who I am. But to insist on only these negative stories is to flatten my experience and to overlook the many other stories that formed me. The single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make one story become the only story. Of course, Africa is a continent full of catastrophes, the immense ones such as the horrific rapes in Congo and depressing ones such as the fact that 5,000 people apply for one job vacancy in Nigeria. But there are other stories that are not about catastrophe, and it's very important, it is just as important to talk about them. I've always felt that it is impossible to engage properly with a place or a person without engaging with all of the stories of that place and that person. The consequence of the single story is this, it robs people of dignity. It makes our recognition of our equal humanity difficult. It emphasizes how we are different rather than how we are similar. So what if before my Mexican trip, I had followed the immigration debate from both sides, the US and the Mexican? What if my mother had told us that Fide's family was poor and had working? What if we had an African television network that broadcasts diverse African stories all over the world, what the Nigerian writer Chino Achebe calls a balance of stories? What if my roommate knew about my Nigerian publisher, Mukta Bakare, a remarkable man who left his job in a bank to follow his dream and start a publishing house? Now, the conventional wisdom was that Nigerians don't read literature. He disagreed. He felt that people who could read would read if you made literature affordable and available to them. Shortly after he published my first novel, I went to a TV station in Lagos to do an interview. And a woman who walked there as a messenger came up to me and said, I really liked your novel. I didn't like the ending. Now, you must write a sequel, and this is what will happen. (laughs) (laughs) And she went on to tell me what to write in the sequel. Now, I was not only charmed, I was very moved. Here was a woman, part of the ordinary masses of Nigerians who were not supposed to be readers. She had not only read the book, but she had taken ownership of it and felt Justified in telling me what to write in the sequel. Now, what if my roommate knew about my friend, Fumi Yonda, a fearless woman who hosts a TV show in Lagos and is determined to tell the stories that we prefer to forget? What if my roommate knew about the heart procedure that was performed in the Lagos hospital last week? What if my roommate knew about contemporary Nigerian music, talented people singing in English and Pidgin and Ibo and Yoruba and Ijo, Mixing influences from Jay Z to Fela to Bob Marley to their grandfathers. What if my roommate knew about the female lawyer who recently went to court in Nigeria to challenge a ridiculous law that required women to get their husband's consent before renewing their passports? What if my roommate knew about Nollywood, full of innovative people making films despite great technical odds? films so popular that they really are the best example of Nigerians consuming what they produce? What if my roommate knew about my wonderfully ambitious hair braider who has just started her own business selling hair extensions? Or about the millions of other Nigerians who start businesses and sometimes fail but continue to nurse ambition? Every time I am home, I am confronted with the usual sources of irritation for most Nigerians, our failed infrastructure, our failed government, but also by the incredible resilience of people who thrive despite the government rather than because of it. I teach writing workshops in Lagos every summer and it is amazing to me how many people apply, how many people are eager to write, to tell stories. My Nigerian publisher and I have just started a non-profit called Farafina Trust and we have big dreams of building libraries and refurbishing libraries that already exist and providing books for state schools that don't have anything in their libraries, and also of organizing lots and lots of workshops and reading and writing for all the people who are eager to tell our many stories. Stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity. The American writer Alice Walker wrote this about um, her southern relatives who had moved to the north, and she introduced them to a book about the southern life that they had left behind. They sat around reading the book themselves, listening to me read the book, and the kind of paradise was regained. I would like to end with this thought, that when we reject the single story, when we realize that there is never a single story about any place, we regain a kind of paradise. Thank you.
0: Raising Independent Thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Beth Sheba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant. Owner of Homeschool Guide LLC and mother of two. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, You just listened to The Danger of a Single Story by Chimamandu Ngozi Adichie, and she's an author and speaker from Nigeria. And um, as I listened to her TED talk, I, I found her stories about her upbringing very interesting, because I too had this single-minded thought in my in my mind when I was younger that most African people who lived in Africa um, either struggled or lived in poverty, um, and these these are the images that were ingrained in my head as a young child images that were shown on commercials and taught in school um, to make you fearful of even traveling to Africa. And it wasn't until um, I started meeting people, like in high school, middle school and high school from Africa, and having my own experiences with them that I learned the actual truth. And I actually feel ashamed that I haven't traveled um, there yet Ghana is where my children's um, family is from, and it's a place where I would love to visit one day and plan to take them with me, but the way Chimamanda um, explained the danger of telling a single story also made me think of people of color here in this country, in America, and how people from other cultures are told certain things about us, and how we're all put in one category of maybe being lazy or loud or uneducated. And as a person of color myself, as a child, we're taught that black history starts with slavery, which then creates other sorts of stereotypes. You know, I remember seeing images of um Jim Crow and The Savage, on Jemima and so on. And these things have a significant role even today in the shaping of attitudes toward brown people in America and unfortunately many of us were never taught about the many people of color who are indigenous to to America who helped build America and should be a part of studying um, our studies of American history. So one of the reasons why I wanted to create the show, Raising Independent Thinkers, is so that our children can make sense of the world based on their many observations and experiences rather than just going along with what someone else tells them, but really doing the research and learning for themselves. And it's important that we as parents raise our children to be independent and competent so that eventually they are capable of taking care of themselves independently. And this is why I encourage homeschooling so much. You know, I believe that parents should be their child's main teacher. As a parent, you have more authority over what your child is learning. So if you are thinking of homeschooling, please check out my, um, I do have a how-to homeschool webinar available on, on my website at home-schoolguide.com. And you can go check out um, the webinar there. So last week, uh, we talked about, or actually two weeks ago, we talked about Joel A. Rogers, who is an author of 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro. And I read all about his life. Um, He was a true Renaissance man. And I was especially inspired by reading all about his travels. Um, because I love to travel, and I was just wondering, you know, how how was he able to do all of this traveling? So he traveled throughout the United States by working as a Pullman porter in the early 1920s, which um, many of you know were men hired to work on railroad sleeping cars, and his job was basically to serve the passengers every need. So... Um, he was able to travel from that opportunity and was able to meet many different people along his journey. In the 1920s, he started writing for all the important Negro publications like the messenger, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Amsterdam news. And these publications were all in New York. And that opportunity allowed him to travel to Europe, to Germany, to Paris, London, Egypt, um, And Ethiopia. And during that time, he did all of his research. He visited museums, art galleries, bookstores, churches, and um, wrote columns about Black history. So I find his story remarkable. And, you know, I'm looking into some of his other books. I just purchased his book um, called Africa's Gift to America on Amazon, and I'm waiting for that to come. But this week, um, I wanted to talk about his facts on the arts, which is on page 20 in the book, 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro. And he writes about four artists, which I did um, a little bit of my own research along with reading his research. Um, But I'll just go ahead and read his writings. Um, He writes, and I'll start with number six. And it says, the Negro was the first artist. The oldest drawings and carvings yet discovered were executed by the Negro peoples over 15,000 years ago in southern France, northern Spain, Palestine, South Africa, and India. The drawings are on rocks, the carvings on bone, basalt, and ivory. Um, I found that the Venus of Willendorf is the oldest and most famous surviving work of art. Um, The figurine is measured measured just under four and a half feet high, and it could fit comfortably in the palm of your hand, so it's very small. In the absence of um, writing, art historians rely on the objects themselves to learn about ancient people. And the form of the Venus of Willendorf, that is what it looks like, may very well inform what it originally meant. The most conspicuous elements of her anatomy are those that dealt with the process of reproduction and child rearing. The artist took particular care to emphasize her breast, which some scholars suggest indicates that she is able to nurse a child. And the artist also brought deliberate attention to her pubic area. The Venus of Willendorf is only one example of figures we believe may have been associated with fertility. Nevertheless, it retains a place of prominence within the history of human art. And when actually looking at the sculpture, when you're looking at the head, um, it's very interesting because there's like many rows that look like it could be a braided hairstyle of some sort. And um, the Venus of Willendorf is now located in the Nature Historisches Museum in Vienna. So that's the information that um, I found about the Venus of Willendorf. Okay, so the next one is um, about the composer Beethoven, which I found very interesting. Um, And I'll go ahead and read. It says, Beethoven is the world's greatest musician, was without a doubt a dark mulatto, He was called the Black Spaniard. His teacher, the immortal Joseph Hayden, who wrote the music for the former Austrian national anthem, was colored also. So this book is um, actually, like, in two parts. The first part, um, he lists the facts. And then the second part, he talks about... um, Basically, the proof on where how he how he got the facts. So, the proof actually is on page forty six, and it reads: Frederick Hertz, who was a German a German anthropologist in Race and Civilization, refers twice to Beethoven's Negroid traits and his dark skin and flat, thick nose, which is on page one twenty three. Of race and civilization. Frau Fischer, an intimate acquaintance of Beethoven, describes him as short, stocky, broad shoulders, short neck, round nose, blackish brown complexion. And that's from The Man Who Freed Music, Volume 1, page 18. In speaking of the immortal Hayden, who was Beethoven's teacher, Andre de Hevesi says, Everyone knows the incident at Kismartin or Eisenstadt, the residence of Prince Esterhazy, in the middle of the first allegro of Haydn's symphony. His Highness asked the name of the author. He was brought forward. What, he exclaimed to the prince? The music is by this Blackamoor? Well, my fine Blackamoor henceforth Thou art in my service. Carpini, who originally related this, says that Hayden, Hayden's complexion gave room for sarcasm and that Hayden had the title of second professor of music, but his new comrades called him the more. And we know Moor means having dark skin. So, referring to the above incident, Alexander W. Thayer, perhaps the foremost authority on Beethoven, says, Beethoven had even more of the more in his features than, than his master, Negro. Until recent times, the German for Negro was more. Paul Becker, another very noted authority on Beethoven, says, that the most faithful picture of Beethoven's head shows him with wide, thick-lipped mouth, short, thick nose, and a proudly arched forehead, which is in Beethoven, page 41, 1925. Thayer adds that Beethoven was an ugly little man and no one would be more astonished than the great composer should he return and see how he has been idolized by sculptors and painters. Beethoven's family's Originated in Belgium, which had been ruled for a century by the Spaniards, who had large numbers of Negro soldiers in their army there. In short, the general description of Beethoven, even to his frizzly hair, fits that of many an Afro American or West Indian mulatto. It seems, you know, after reading all of this, it does seem like a lot of Proof came from writings of people who actually knew and met Beethoven. Um, and I think when we're teaching our children about music appreciation and we start discussing the different composers, I find Beethoven to be very interesting to study um, of course i I learned about Beethoven but didn't didn't know about any of this. Um, but when teaching children um, his symphonies were beautiful. And unfortunately, many of the drawings that we find are not a correct repre- um, representative, but, but we describe what Beethoven, um, I guess if we describe what Beethoven looks like from the research that was given, our children can have a better idea and maybe even draw their own um, picture of what they think he might look like. So the last artist um, that I'll read about is Jose Vasconcelos, El Negrito Poeta. And um, he was an important Mexican writer, philosopher, and politician. And I will read what is said about him. Um, he was born of African Congo, born to African Congo parents, at um almalanga mexico about 1710 wrote verses that were so popular that they entered into mexican folklore and were printed annually on the calendars of mexico until 1872 120 years after his death so um again he was an important mexican writer philosopher and politician He was one of the most influential and um, controversial personalities in the development of modern Mexico. His philosophy of the cosmic race affected all aspects of Mexican socioculture, um, political, and economic policies. And he believed that one day a new race of people would be born out of the Americas in his um, 1925 essay, which is called, Excuse me, the La Raza Cosmica, because Latin America are mestizos, a mix of European, African, and Asian ancestry. He believed they actually transcend all other races. And in his essay, um, Jose predicted the coming of a new age that has aesthetic error in which joy, love, fantasy, and creativity would prevail over the rationalism he saw as dominating the present age. Um, In this new age, marriages would no longer be dictated by necessity or convenience, but by love and beauty, ethnic obstacles already in the process of being broken down, especially in Latin America, would disappear altogether, giving birth to a fully mixed race, a cosmic race in which all the better qualities of each race would persist by the natural selection of love. So he had some very strong views um which were sometimes contradictory and he was an artist in the sense of um his writings and these are the four artists that Joel Rogers talks about in his book um next week I'll read on ancient civilizations which I'm very excited about but there are also um some other artists that I found interesting to study And um, the first one is Henry Osawa Tanner, and um, he was an American artist from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He was born in 1859, died in 1937, and he was known for his modern art, realism, symbolism, impressionism, and the Harlem Renaissance. The next one, um, the next artist was Romare Berdu, which the last name is spelled B-E-A-R-D-E-U. He was also an American artist, born in 1911 from Charlotte, North Carolina. He died in 1988, and he was known for many types of media, including cartoons, oils, and collages. He also was an author and a songwriter. And the last artist um, that I looked up, her name was Alma Thomas, and um, she was an artist and a teacher who lived and worked in Washington, D.C. She was recognized as a major American painter. She was born in 1891 and died in 1978. And all three of those artists were um, people of color. So I hope um, that you all enjoyed learning about these artists. And I'm going to end tonight's show um, with a quote. It's a very short quote. And it reads, you are the artist of your life. Don't give the paintbrush to anyone else. And that's by an unknown author. But I hope you all enjoyed, um, you know, learning all about different types of artists. And I hope you join me next week um, for next week's show, the same, same day and same time. Have a blessed week. Peace.